who would pay for this epidemiology study? Would it force uh, DuPont or Comores to do it, or would it, you know, be funded by the EPA? So we are requesting that the EPA, I mean, the EPA has the authority under TSCA to require Comores or DuPont, whoever they, whoever legally is responsible to pay for the studies. Now, we're not asking that they um, conduct the studies. We don't want Comores and DuPont to conduct the studies. We want them to pay for independent researchers to conduct the studies. Um, we think that that is a more equitable and- yeah, um, third party. And, and justifiable solution than to require um, taxpayer funds be used for this. And then one other thing that I wanted to point out with this lawsuit is that we felt like a, we, we felt an obligation really to the rest of the country to file this appeal because if we let this dismissal stand, it is setting a dangerous and ca catastrophic precedent within the EPA. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders, climate champions, and sustainability professionals who are making an impact in their businesses today. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Hello, ET Nation. I'm excited to announce that I've updated my website that provides listeners more access to episode content and information about the podcast. Please take a moment and visit the website and sign up for email notifications and blog postings. Also, check out our sponsors page to see who supports the show. We can't thank these industry leaders enough. Finally, I would really appreciate if you would take a moment and post a review and rate the podcast episodes either from my website or from within your podcast app. This helps the podcast get more exposure on Apple Podcasts and other podcast networks. Also, please send me comments and recommendations on topics that you want to hear about. I hope you enjoy the new website, so check it out at www.seankgrady.com. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Grady, and today's guest is a repeat guest. She's a returning guest to the show. We're so excited to have Emily Donovan back. And uh, for those of you who haven't watched or listened to our previous episode on the uh, Clean Cape Fear, uh, it, you know, it was a really good one, but we're going to bring her back today, get some updates. Um, Emily is the co-founder of Clean Cape Fear. It's a grassroots community group which for, was formed in uh, 2017 after learning DuPont Kumors uh, spent nearly 40 years of releasing large quantities of PFAS into drinking water supply, uh, you know, wells or not wells, but into their drinking water supply used by over 300,000 North Carolina residents and contaminated over 450 or 4,500 private wells near um, the uh, Fayetteville manufacturing facility. So she's worked tirelessly on PFAS uh, contamination crisis uh, on the national stage. And she's also been, you know, supporting the, some of the lobby day efforts in Washington, DC and uh, did a post uh, live event panel discussion with Mark Rufflow and the lawyer of the uh, dark waters um, movie, Robert Balat. So Emily, that's a lot going on. Thanks for joining the show. Looking forward to our conversation. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's do this. Let's do a quick reset for the new listeners who maybe didn't see the or listen to the old episode. 
let's talk a little bit about, you know, what, you know, where a little bit, tell us about clean Cape fear and what your mission is. So we are, like you said um, in the intro, we're a grassroots community group. We formed after learning about DuPont and Camores dumping atrocious levels of PFAS into our drinking water supply. And so for the last nearly six years, we have really been fighting to hold um, our elected leaders accountable, government agencies, basically everyone that has a hand in trying to make our community whole again. We are working to rally them around this topic and, um, and build general public awareness and keep pushing and keep fighting. I mean, the landscape has changed tremendously from when I started. Um, we talk about PFAS now um, as a as a national topic. It is um, you know on the federal the federal level something that we are seeing reported more in national media. Um, so it's not just a localized issue anymore. It's not just a couple of contaminated communities. I mean, this is a problem that is so widespread. I mean, it's it, it is in my mind, uh, a global public health crisis. And I know I'm not alone, alone in, uh, in feeling that way. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel the same way. It's like, it's everywhere. <laughs> everywhere, and, including in us. And, um, and that is, and, it, and it's in us without our consent. And I think that is, it, the more people are aware of, of just kind of this, that, I mean, there's a lot of things that can keep us up at night. Um, but I think this one, it, it really hit our community hard, but it has also hit so many other communities. And we're fine, we're learning just at even tiny doses the impact to have chronic exposures of this. Um, and it's just the nature of them. I mean, they're called forever chemicals for a reason. Um, there is no proven safe disposable me disposal method. They are used, unfortunately, in near, nearly everything. There's limited to no regulations. Um, and, and there's thousands of them in commercial right. use. Yeah. Right. Right. No, they're everywhere. There's millions, there's thousands, thousands of these things. They're forever. They don't break down the environment. They, they do cause cancers and other uh, human, uh, you know, effects. And, and I think we're still learning. We have a lot to learn on what those true effects are to our, to our, the exposure we're seeing. Um, well, let's talk really good. I'm sorry, you make a really good point there when you say, I mean, this is this is the concern is that when we look at toxicologists and health experts, they're saying nearly every system that they test on health effects related to PFAS exposures, they're finding some sort of impact on nearly every organ system in the human right. body. Right, right. I mean, that's, you know, just watch that uh, Dark Waters movie and you, your mind just starts to go, <laughs> you can't believe it. You know, it's unbelievable. Um well, you know, recently there's been a lot of talk about the EPA's new proposed drinking water MCLs. You know, how do you think that'll affect Cape Fear and Camores in the in your area? I mean, I you know, this is a really good first step. I mean, it will it and and when we put it in perspective, I mean, there's a couple of things that that I see play out. I mean, like I said, I, I attended the press conference. Um, I was given the distinct honor of introducing Administrator Regan to, to make the announcement. I mean, so this was a, a huge, I think, moment, not just for our community, but really for drinking water in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, these MCLs, um, which are essentially drinking water standards, they're being proposed for six PFAS. And, and the, the thing that I think is um, important to understand is that it has been decades since the EPA oh, has yeah. issued drinking water standards. I mean, that just shows you the brokenness of this system. I mean, we are there are water utilities that are still using World War I technology for drinking water cleanup. 
or to, to clean and filter tap water. I mean, and we're dealing with 21st century chemistry and chemicals. And so there is a huge divide and disconnect between how we are serving up drinking water in the United States versus the contamination that's happening and the lack of regulations around a monitoring for these contaminants and then B, setting regulations around them so that utilities are held accountable for making sure that they are you know, detecting, noticing, and cleaning them up so that we can protect public health. Because I think what we forget, I mean, water is free, should be free. Um, it is, I mean, we pay a, a basic fee. So when I say water is free, it's it's free if you go to the, if you go to a restaurant, you can order a glass of water and that is free. Um, it is It is our basic human right. So it should be easily accessible, but it also right. shouldn't be giving us cancer. Right. And so what do I think about the the current the, you know, the current MCLs that are being proposed, um, and the MCL stands for maximum contaminant levels, which is, is really, again, like I said, another term for drinking water standards. What I think is important about this for our region is that, I mean, pretty much our entire water systems, there's three big water districts in our area that serve half a million residents. And those water systems uh, would already be triggered if, if these proposed standards were put in place tomorrow. We would, we would exceed them and our utilities would need to intervene and intervene quickly. I mean, the, the good news is that um, we're already doing that. The utilities down here, this has been on their radar for five years, six years. And so they are in the works right now of upgrading their facilities. The sad news is that those upgrades are costing ratepayers a ton of money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And the burden of that is falling on the ratepayers. It is not falling on the responsible parties. It's not falling on Comores. Comores is refusing, and in, they are in active litigation against paying for these upgrades. And so our utilities are having to mm. build these processes, put them into place, raise rates so that they can provide this service to the community while also suing and fighting to get, you know, to get the costs picked up by the responsible party. Um, now, if you're a private well owner, it's a different situation. And again, our, the scope and magnitude of our crisis down here is huge. It spans, what I want to say, like eight counties and impacts um, over 6,000 private wells near the Fayetteville facility. It's now impacting private wells as far away as Topsail Beach and Calabash. And for those that don't know North Carolina very well, um, that's about 80 miles away from the facility near the coast. Um, it's impacting um, the water systems, like I said, half a million who, have, um, who get their water from the Cape Fear River. It's a massive scale and scope for the contamination. Um, if you're on a private well, you do have some protection uh, through a consent agreement that was signed in 2019. That consent agreement, if these, uh, if these drinking water standards go into effect by the EPA, that would actually open up some more resources to some private well owners in our region. And so there is some benefit to making sure that, that this, um, these drinking water standards get approved. And you can also see because it would directly benefit the community that we can imagine the industry is not interested in making in getting these passed. And we're starting to see signals in the media that they're fighting back. Is that right? Well, I mean, it's probably not a surprise. I mean, four, four parts per trillion is a very low number to uh, achieve uh, for cleanup standard for, for most, uh, you know, well, even for typical treatment systems, even good treatment systems, that's a very low number. I mean, um, 
it is a shame to see that uh, the consumer uh, of the uh, the residents of these communities of these affected communities are the ones paying for all of this infrastructure upgrade into these treatment facilities when the polluters they're you know fighting against you know supporting local communities and not really being a good corporate stu- uh, steward or a citizen so, you know it's just really a a shame that that's happening so I like that there's new limits that are being proposed. Do they go far enough? Do we really have the best, you know, I mean, do we have enough science that says this should be more than six or, you know, I think we need more, uh, you know, and I'm just really concerned about that. I think, um, you know, there recently were uh, four community environmental group petitions and uh, petitioning the EPA to uh, require Comores to conduct critical ep- epidemiology studies uh, on you know 54 of these toxic chemicals um, that puts a lot of you know residents in, in North Carolina at risk. You know, can you update us on that petition that you guys submitted, and uh, why you know why was it dismissed? Because that's basically the big aha update. But why was it dis- dis- dismissed, and you know what impacts will that have on the community and others? Yeah, I'm happy to do that. You know what? I'd love to circle back and just. Um, finish up a thread from the earlier question. Um, you you raise a really great point about, is this enough addressing just six PFAS? And you're absolutely right, it's not enough. And one thing that we, re- we requested in my public comments when I was introducing the administrator during the press event uh, was that we needed a class approach. We need to regulate yeah, okay. PFAS yeah. as a class and we need a whole of government approach. We need more than just the EPA working to address this. We need every level and layer of government addressing this PFAS contamination crisis so that we aren't constantly readdressing it um, every five, every 10 years. Um, and then another thing I wanted to, to point out is you said, is it, is it enough? I mean, four parts per trillion, absolutely, like you just said, low. I mean, that's some of the lowest detective levels uh, or detection levels that utilities are being hit with. Here's one benefit of that is that if we're treating for PFAS at that level, then likely utilities will be cleaning out and treating other contaminants. Other contaminants, absolutely, yeah. And so the level and quality of drinking water is going to get exponential very quickly. So these are, I think, important investments to be made. I think it is important to talk about the cost. One other thing to remember is that last June um, of last year, the EPA issued interim health advisories for PFOA and PFOS, which when you uh, referred to them being with the proposed drinking water standard is four parts per trillion for PFOA and PFOS. But the health advisory, which was based solely on just the health science, said that they needed to be below like like zero, zero point. I mean, they were they were hugely low past a level of detection. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the health level. And so the proposal of four parts per trillion is accounting for feasibility. It is not solely based on health. It is feasibility. So I think that is a humbling reality that we need to address is that if we really are interested in health, that level should be zero. But because we know that utilities, it's it's difficult. There's a little bit of wiggle room to get to zero level. They're recommending four as the compromise. Um, and I think it's a it's a nuanced, weedy detail, but it is a very important detail when we're talking about public health in my mind. Yeah, I mean, essentially non-detect is a really hard, you know, achievable goal. I mean, is it really achievable in, in today's 
you know, world, uh, the way, you know, we've seen so many of these chemicals out there. Uh, you, you bring up a good point about, you know, the byproduct of treating other chemicals to, you know, non-detect limits or, you know, such low detections uh, because you're treating uh, for PFOS is, is a benefit to, to all, right? So I, I totally agree with you there. I think that's great. Today's podcast is sponsored by Cascade Environmental, the only field services contractor with the experts and equipment to support you from project conception to completion, even when it comes to PFOS contamination. Their field personnel are experienced in the stringent protocols required for PFOS-related drilling. Their proprietary Waterloo app system can support the most complete delineation of PFOS contamination in soils and groundwater. And now their thermal team is preparing for their first field demonstration of thermal PFOS treatment. If you'd like to learn more about Cascade's PFOS delineation and remediation capabilities, contact them at www.cascade-env.com. That's www.cascade-env.com. I have a question for you about, you know, should we establish or should the EPA establish a, a class of PFAS chemicals to account for more short chain or, long, you know, long chain variants that aren't in the, the list of six? I mean, there's thousands of these. So, you know, what should we do? Should we do a class like we do with, P, you know, PCBs? PCB does a class like so. Why don't I mean, there's already precedent in this uh, approach anyways. Um, has there been talk that you know of within EPA about establishing classes? Well, I can't speak on what's happening inside the EPA, but I, I can say that when we look at the six PFAS that were proposed for drinking water standards, two PFOA and PFOS were given MCLs of four parts per trillion. The other four PFAS were treated as a mixture, which is kind of moving into that class-based mm -hmm, approach. It is mm -hmm. a slow walk there, but it is definitely acknowledging that this is the direction they want to go in. Um, so now, you know, me who raised my children on this contaminated tap water, who has seen friends and loved ones die, um, I'm, I'm never going to be satisfied until something happens like yesterday. Um, but that is not the world we live in, and that is not realistic. Um, so we have to live in the reality that we have before us, which is here's what we, here's the arena we can play in. And the arena that we can play in is um, we need a class-based approach. We have this current administration and this current EPA is showing a commitment to get us closer. And we, as residents of the United States, need to hold the line and, and continue to hold our regulators accountable and say, give us what we deserve, um, which, is, which is health protective drinking water, not just clear drinking water. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I travel the U.S. Uh, for work and other things, there are so many communities that don't really see this issue popping up on their radar. I mean, they're, they don't feel like, or they may be not even aware that this is a, a, you know, a global, you know, issue, like, you know, uh, existential threat to society in a sense. Right. I mean, because they're not affected, like, you know, they're not, they don't live in um, an area that, you know, was where a chemical industry, you know, facility was is discharging these types of chemicals and exposure. Granted, we all know that people are do have exposures through the products that they're buying and they just don't realize it. We and then that's the problem, right? And I think um, the more that we can do to elevate the awareness of, to the everyday citizen in the U.S. I mean, because again, 
a lot of people aren't recognizing this as a true threat, but um, people are uh, in your communities and others that are exposed. I mean, this is a major situation. It's in, it's not affecting just health issues. I mean, think about the property issues, the property, you know, values of homes are like, nobody wants to live in those areas. It's like, you know, you it's, it's really, it's really having an impact, you know, economically as well. Um, you know, it's interesting that you say that because down in our area, because we're on the coast, we're kind of an outlier. Uh, we've had the, I think Brunswick County, the county that I live in is um, the fastest growing county or one of the fastest growing counties in the nation, definitely the fastest growing county in the state. And I think Wilmington last year uh, topped the list of most moved to cities. Um, <laughs> okay, so it's not stopping them. <laughs> it is. Um, and, and you know, some of that, I think, is that we're, it's, we're, not, we're not next to the facility um, and CFPUA has, when I say CFPUA, it's Cape Fear um, Public Utility Authority. It's the water district that serves the city of Wilmington. Um, they've already, they've already installed their upgrades. And so the drinking water is, is nearly PFAS free. Um, I think they've gotten it down to levels of non-detect to get there. It's, it's been a huge engineering feat. And it's cost a lot of money, um, but they've been able to do that. The um, the other thing that I wanted to point out that you raised is, you know, there's 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 the cost, the cost of health. I mean, I'm we hear constantly of communities that would absolutely love to have health protective and 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 the best available drinking water, but they live in a town or a community that just doesn't have the resources to do it. And so I will say that I am impressed that the Biden administration and Congress last year passed the infrastructure, um, the infrastructure act that is giving money and it specifically carved out funds for PFAS remediation of utilities. Now, is that enough money? No, it's not enough money, but it is money for communities that need it. Like in our situation, we don't need taxpayer funds to clean out our drinking water. We know who broke our water. We know who trashed yeah. it, looted it, who yeah. poisoned it. We need our, our regulators to use every tool in the regulatory toolbox to hold that polluter accountable. And we need them to do that across the nation and other communities. And so one benefit of having these drinking water standards is if they get approved um, and, and the public comment period is open right now, and I highly encourage everyone to go and give public comment in support of these MCLs um, for PFAS is that when this is approved, it is going to require utilities to start monitoring and testing regularly for these contaminants. And this is how communities will know if they have this in their tap water. Because again, when you're not monitoring and you're not testing. Yeah, you don't know. Right. Yeah. Don't and know so this, this, is, this is a real great way to start this, you know, to open the conversation and start really addressing a public health threat that has been flying on the radar for decades, which we saw in the movie with Mark Ruffalo about Rob Bullock. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, that that movie was uh, transformational for me, um, uh, just watching it and, and really wrapping my head around the uh, the magnitude of PFAS contamination in our country, actually worldwide, because, you know, I know in Europe, they're facing similar uh, scenarios of contaminated PFAS watersheds uh, from, you know, similar companies, just like the ones here doing the same thing there and also, you know, in Australia and others. So it, it is a big issue. And if it's not that it's, you know, the firefighting foams from military installations and things like that, that are also having, you know, major impacts. And, 
What's interesting is the federal government's involved with all of the, you know, the, the military operations. So, so they're the responsible party. It's not the actual, you know, chemical manufacturer. It's the actual users of the chemicals. Um, and, and so, man, that's got to be a fine line between, you know, you know, a military federal government installation, you know, and then all you've got the, the regulatory body of EPA also, you know, trying to establish rules and, Hey, you're going to regulate our own company, you know, our own, you know, internal business. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, the government's essentially in one business to another It's essentially is what's happening here. I mean, agency to another, I mean, it's, it's interesting how this is going to play out. Um, but I think the overall benefits of having the new MCL is going to be major. They are also establishing it as a, you know, a toxic, um, you know, a hazardous pollutant is going to be big, uh, especially for circle because now it means like new money will be able to be available for going and addressing remedial cleanups uh, for a lot of these contaminated sites that aren't there now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's an important detail is that if this administration continues on its path, um, which I think they just recently released um, designating certain PFAS as hazardous substance. And again, that unlocks Superfund law. And right. Superfund law is the is the mechanism in which the EPA can go and tell the responsible party, you need to pay for this cleanup. And so, again, if we really want to see justice and if we really want to achieve equity, these are the things we do. Because I think there's a strong appetite in the United States. I think Americans, regardless of political spectrum, at least in, in our community, um, really want to see corporations held accountable. That is the one thing that we are united on is that corporations should be held accountable. Yeah, amen. I pre I totally agree with that with that. Um well let's double back on my one previous question that we kind of um doubled back on a brief another question about the update on the Tosca petition uh and you know the outcome of that and why it was dismissed. And I have some questions about the um uh, if the judge should have recused himself from, you know, being a lifelong resident of the community. And, and I'm thinking, wow, it just, it looks a little like he almost had to side the other way. You know, that's just my, I guess, you know, unbiased view or, or whatnot, but uh, yeah. anyway, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Well, we, <laughs> we had, we had a brief day in court on Valentine's day of this, this past year. And um, or, you know, this last Valentine's Day where um, where the judge was was hearing the grounds to dismiss EPA. I think this was probably the most frustrating and devastating aspect of our Tosca litigation is that the, the EPA um, was asking to dismiss our lawsuit. And just to give a little background for everybody. Mm -hmm. So we filed a petition under the Trump administration using the Toxic Substance Control Act or other word, you know, um, which Tosca. we call Tosca. And under Tosca, um, it offers a chance for communities to petition the EPA to, to seek out health studies where health studies are not available. We identified 54 PFAS that were coming specifically from Comores that we had found in blood, human blood, in food, in the air, in the soil, and in the drinking water. And we were asking to have access to health study, toxicity studies on those chemicals, as well as mixture studies, because again, we didn't drink these in, in, in one chemical at a time. We drank them in a whole cocktail um, of, of toxic chemicals. And what does the additive effect have on the human body? And then also we were already exposed for decades. Yeah. 
And so we're asking for a longitudinal human epidemiological study, similar in model to the C8 science panel that was done in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Yep. Because we know, like we, we know, look, you know, let's skip past all the rodent studies and the guinea pigs and let's study the, the real guinea pigs in the room, which was our families and our, our community. <laughs> So that we can get a fighting chance at understanding what some of these illnesses are that we're seeing in our community. We're seeing recurrent cancers that should be treated with conventional um, therapies that are just not, they're just not working. We're seeing um, rare cancers. I mean, we're seeing um, really, really odd odd diseases and illnesses in residents far too young to pass off as normal. And so we're sounding the alarm locally and saying, this doesn't feel right. This is too much illness um, to be normal. You need to come and study us. You need to give us access to cancer registries. You need to look at these can cancer registries by our water districts and zip codes, not by our county where that information gets diluted. And you definitely don't need to um, compare us against ourselves, which dilutes the data. You need to compare us against communities in North Carolina that weren't exposed to PFAS chronically for decades so that we can really see what's happening. And so we're not getting access to any of those health studies. And so that's what formed, we formed this coalition with um, Center for Environmental Health, Cape Fear River Watch, and Toxic Free NC. And so the four of us came together and we formed this petition. We asked the, the EPA, the Trump EPA to, um, to grant it, they denied it. Then the administration changed. So we said, let's try with the Biden administration, see what happens. We, um, we resubmitted to the Biden administration and they told us that they granted it. But then when we went and read through the, the granting, they granted 3% of our requests. So 97% of the tests that we requested, they, den um, they denied or they ignored. And so we sued under, um, under a section within Tosca. And so we went into litigation and the EPA immediately filed to dismiss the lawsuit. So that's what happened around Valentine's Day is that we were sitting in this courtroom listening to the judge. And the judge, I, I will give credit to Judge Myers, is that he was very honest and he was very transparent. And he said, this is hard. I know that I need to be um, I, I need to be as transparent as possible because I was also raised in this community, but I also need to follow the law. And so what happened in this particular case is that the judge was asking the question of, does the court have the legal authority to or jurisdiction over deciding if a petition has been granted or not? And the question came down to, did we file one petition or did we file 54 petitions? What, you know, a, um, an individual petition for each chemical that we were asking to be tested. We argued that we were we filed 54 mini petitions within one big document. The EPA said, no, sorry, they filed one petition. The EPA said we granted it because we created a national testing strategy and that that national testing strategy will give this community what they need. And that is the furthest thing from the truth, I believe, that, that we heard is that, no, the national testing strategy is a, is a program that is helping inform the EPA on how to regulate PFAS. But that program is not giving us access to the PFAS. The yeah, the epidemiology data that you want to right. see you know, how exposure has affected the community. The, especially in the PFAS that are in our blood right now. Right. So, um, so we, um, we decided as a group that we were gonna appeal. And so we actually filed the appeal today. 
And, um, and so that is, that is happening. So we are, we are moving into another district in the court system to, to try and get, um, to try and get this overturned. Did you know E-Tank is the only environmental rental equipment company in the industry that offers a 100% certified clean guarantee at no additional cost? Well, this gives customers the peace of mind knowing that container contents from the previous renter isn't going to cross-contaminate the contents of the current customer and potentially cause liability concerns. You know, E-Tank also provides a one-of-a-kind complete maintenance program for all its rental items, including liquid-tight roll-off containers, fluid transfer pumps, and filtration system components. To learn more about the types of containers and pumps E-Tank supplies, check out their website at www.etank.net. So the next time you are faced with an environmentally challenging project, give E-Tank a call to help solve your problem. It's just that easy. Well, that's encouraging. I mean, to that extent, like hey, the fight's still going. We're, you know, we're going to continue this fight. Uh, it just doesn't make sense. I think there's already precedent that, uh, the EPA uh, have granted this type of a, a study. Now, I think it's it was more the court was forcing uh, DuPont to, to do the the pay for it. And now, how is this change? I mean, is this who would pay for this epidemiology study? Would it force uh, DuPont or Comores to do it, or would it you know be funded by the EPA? So we are requesting that the EPA, I mean, the EPA has the authority under TSCA to require Comores or DuPont, whoever they, whoever legally is responsible to pay for the studies. Now, we're not asking that they um, conduct the studies. We don't want Comores and DuPont to conduct the studies. We want them to pay for independent researchers to conduct the studies. Um, we think that that is a more equitable and yeah, third party. And, and justifiable solution than to require uh, taxpayer funds be used for this. And then one other thing that I wanted to point out with this lawsuit is that we felt like a, we, we felt an obligation really to the rest of the country to file this appeal, because if we let this dismissal stand, it is setting a dangerous and ca catastrophic precedent within the EPA. Because what this would mean is that future administrations could take a TOSCA petition and say publicly that they granted it when they barely granted anything in name only, they could say they granted it. And then, um, and then bury citizens' ability to find any sort of legal recourse for that granting of the petition, especially when work wasn't done. And so we, we feel that this needs to be looked at and it needs to it needs to be reassessed. Um, otherwise, this is this we think is going to have long standing repercussions for the for the nation. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. Um, well, I'm glad you guys are fighting that and continuing that appeal. And and you know, let's see where that goes. And so hopefully the the new judge that it'll be assigned to will be a little more, um, um, you know, I guess sympathetic or understanding of the, 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 the requirements here or the expectation here that they really protect the citizens there. Um, what are your concerns around the, this NRDC study that was released, you know, and, and how they don't really address the short chain PFAS chemicals um, that are going to go unmonitored, you know? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So last week, the um, or two weeks ago, the NRDC launched a, a peer-reviewed study in a, in a scientific journal. And we participated in that. We submitted two samples, one from Oak Island and one from Ocean Isle in Brunswick County. 
And what was what was shocking and alarming, I mean, we, we kind of knew, we've known for a while, we've got a lot of different PFAS and our, our tap water consistently appears to have some of the highest PFAS, PFAS pollution in the nation per multiple nationwide studies. So we kind of figured we would be somewhere in the mix. Again, we were topping the charts as having the most unmonitored PFAS in mm. our tap water mm. um, and at, um, at some of the highest levels. Uh, there was there was a, a sample from Maine that had just atrocious levels of PFAS, but the, the majority of the PFAS in um, in that sample is currently being monitored. Um, and so for this particular instance, what made our samples unique is that these were unmonitored PFAS. And some of them are really ultra short chain PFAS. So when we talk about short chain, we're talking about the carbon fluorine bond. Um, so like a PFOA, PFOS, those, those, that's a C8, so that's eight carbon fluorine bonds. And then, um, and then when you get down to Gen X, that's considered short chain. That's like a C6. And now we're talking about ultra short chains, which are kind of in the, um, the C2s to C4 range. So we actually, in this study, found a previously unmonitored PFAS um, and, and that none of our utilities had been testing for. It was like called PFPRA. And PFPRA was showing up not just, it, it, it was in the highest concentration. It was, it was the, one of the highest concentrations of PFAS in our tap waters, mm -hmm. the tap water samples, but also throughout the whole entire study. So it was showing up in water systems all over the nation and utilities weren't testing for it. Now, I need to explain that the utilities down in my area have been voluntarily testing for more PFAS than what the EPA recommends or requires. And we're doing that because we know that we have a huge contributor of pollution with the Fayetteville facility, Camorza's Fayetteville facility. And so it was shocking to find a PFAS that they weren't testing for. Um, why this is important for the nation and not just North Carolina is that the EPA is again, only proposing drinking water standards for six PFAS out of a universe of tens of thousands. The EPA has issued an unregulated contaminant monitoring rule. And so in the next couple of years, um, utilities are going to be sampling for 29 different PFAS. And um, again, UCMR five, right? That's the UCMR five rule, which they do every two years. And so they've added 29 PFAS limits there, or, you know, con, uh, constituents there. Of course, that's not enough, but I mean, it's 29. It's better it than 29. before. And then if you look at this NRDC study, the NRDC study is basically saying that was not enough. If you really want to see the scope of contamination across the United States, you need to, you need to test for the PFAS as a class. And so again, here we get to, we need to regulate PFAS as a class. We need to monitor for PFAS as a class. And until we do that, we're not going to see the full scope of contamination. And again, why does this matter to communities? It's, it matters when you get down to treatment technology. So we have all of these communities across the nation that are starting to, um, to, to plan on investing in, in water infrastructure upgrades. And they're having to figure out, well, what, what, system, what technology do I use? And what am I treating towards? What is that standard I'm trying to achieve? Mm -hmm. And so if we take Wilmington's water district, for example, so CFPUA is treating for ultra short chain, chain PFAS. That means that they invested 46, um, $42, 46000000 in, um, 
in granulated activated carbon, very deep bed granulated activated carbon filters. And they're regenerating those um, and recharging them on a very quick schedule. And so basically they're changing the filters out very frequently so that they can make sure that, that, that the ultra short chain PFAS are Thank not you. passing through into the tap water. Now, if they're not required to, to test for ultra short chain PFAS, then they wouldn't be changing their filters out as much. That would, that would mean that our rates would be lower, um, but that would also mean the trade-off is we would have- More exposure. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and, and we don't really know or understand the impacts, the health effects of short change PFAS uh, you know, chemicals, right? I mean, that, there's not enough data out there right now to give an indication of it's really as toxic or more toxic, or it does have health effects. I mean, we're still wanting to know that information, right? Because we believe since it's connected to PFAS, you know, typical long chain ones, it's got to have an effect, right? I mean, it's our, that's, we're going to think like that, right? Well, I think we, we do two things. Number one, when you don't know, you exercise precaution because again, drinking water is a basic human right and it is a public health entity. And right. so if you don't know it's safe, it does not belong in anyone's tap water. So we, we exercise precaution. So what CFPUA is doing is exactly correct. They are saying we will spend the money to make sure because we don't know if this is safe at any level, we're gonna make sure no level is in there. Now on the other side, we ask ourselves, uh, if, we, if we lack the data, just because we don't have the data or just because it's short chain, short chain doesn't mean it's safe to drink. I know sometimes I've heard industry say, well, short chain PFAS don't bioaccumulate. And one of the best analogies that I like is from a couple of scientists. I've heard them say, but you drink alcohol chronically. And even though alcohol passes through your system in a few hours, it will have a chronic effect on your body over time, and especially over a lifetime of exposure. We know that to be true. So using that same principle with chronic exposures to chemicals that may not bioaccumulate in our body like their cousins do, does not necessarily mean that they are safe or less toxic. It just means that they're doing their damage for an hour or two instead of years. Right, right. No, that's that's good. So so there needs to be more work done on on the short chain, obviously. We need we need more information. We need more studies there also. Um, I mean, it'd be good maybe if we have a whole class of those, right? You know, a whole class is set up for just the short chain uh, impacts because we want those to be considered in the sampling. Hopefully, the UCMR will start adding those, expanding that PFAS list. I mean, it's probably going to take another year or so uh, because it's a two-year cycle for that uh contaminant list that goes out to public drinking water facilities where they have to actually, you know, sample this for, for a data uh, observations for the EPA. But um, well, let's do this. Let's, let's dive into a little bit of this, you know, infrastructure bill that the Biden administration's put out. You know, the bill is, is uh, helped is established to help, you know, communities deal with, you know, with this emergent, um, uh, emerging contaminants, especially these uh, smaller communities is where I think most of the funding is going to be targeted to. So, you know, I'm, I'm one question goes to, is like, Oh, what about the larger communities who are really impacted? I mean, you know, how do they get support from, from the infrastructure bill, but at least they have something set up for uh, the small community. So what do you think that's, how is that going to really help uh, with this new proposed rule and the EPA chemical uh, proposed chemical uh, MCLs? You know, um, 
I, I think this definitely, it, it helps alleviate some of the concerns. I think one of the things I've heard for years from water utility associations when I was in, um, visiting members of Congress trying to get them to pass legislation like this is, um, is the utility saying, that don't make unfunded mandates. You know, so when you when you set a drinking water standard, most I wouldn't say most utilities, but some utility associations will say, how we, how do we pay for that? That is an unfunded right. mandate when you have us needing to test and treat. And again, unfortunately, this is why America's water systems are where they're at today. It's because the focus has always been on how do we pay for it instead of we we should protect health and we should all work together to figure out how to pay for it, not be so afraid to pay for it that we don't a hold the responsible parties accountable because there are mechanisms in place. If we just right. had political will, we could get this 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 funded properly. I mean, one thing that I would personally love to see happen is I would love to see Congress pass a PFAS use tax. And a PFAS use tax would be fine. Industry, if you're going to keep using PFAS, then you need to pay into a fund similar to kind of like how the banks are regulated with the FDIC. And that is an insurance program for utilities so that if they find out that they're impaired with this, with these drinking water, you know, with, with PFAS in their drinking water, that they can dip into that fund and they can know that industry funded that, that, that pot of money and that that is what that is available for them to use. So, I mean, there's, there's ways that the United States can That's, work this out and yeah. figure it out. It just takes political will yeah, and it but- takes having the courage to quit cowering and catering to industry. Right. I mean, that's very reminiscent of that the approach you just said of like the leaking underground storage tank program. You know, almost every state has a program like that. So if you are an operator, owner operator of an underground storage, you know, uh, uh, tank and, you know, for fueling or whatever you're storing, you pay a tax or a fee into the leaking underground storage fund. So when it's time to clean up that tank, when it leaks, there's money available to help you with the cleanup. Same concept, right? Yeah. Let's let's do something like that, if, you know, and establish something. I think that would be good. Um, that'd be one way. I think it's important too to point out that we're not advocating either for continued uses of PFAS. I think the writing's right. on the wall. Number one, we're, we've played with fire. We have played with a chemistry that we had no business playing with. Um, and we put it in places that it never belonged in. And, and when I say we, I say industry did this. Industry hit it, they lied about it. But when we started learning about those lies, that's when we should have been acting. And so there is a public accountability that we need to take a stand and we need to make a push and we need to force our elected leaders to make this a ballot box issue and say, we are done. We Because the cost of inaction is well above the cost of action. And I think the EPA even highlighted that when they issued their drinking water standards. They said, if you look at the cost of inaction, it's costing the United States billions in, in healthcare costs from these oh, exposures. Absolutely. And we're not even talking about the hidden costs of like, of, of lost wages, of, uh, you know, there's so many GoFundMe's in my community right now. Lost wages, utility, uh, uh, you know, increased utility charges that they're having. The, I mean, that just all eats away. You know, it's it's like, uh, you know, a cumulative effect, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's horrible when yeah. you think about it. Um, so, you know, and it, I, I do feel that, um, that this Infrastructure Act is a good step in the right direction. 
I do think that um, it, the money is, it's not enough. We know it's not going to be enough. Just looking at what our communities are having to go through uh, my, you know, the water district that I live in, uh, Brunswick County is spending $120 million to upgrade their treatment system. They've already had to raise rates once. They're probably going to have to raise them again. And so we know that this is the, this is a huge problem. Um, so we need to make sure that the money is there because there should never be a trade-off of access to health protective water, which is a basic human right and affordability being in, and being told you can't have it because you can't afford it. Yeah. 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 I was looking on the, on the website the other day about the infrastructure bill and um, there there's um, if you're on the EPA's website, you can also see the actual state by state allocation of the funds that will go to, you know, the various affected communities or just, you know, in general, the states uh, to support the small uh, communities that are, are affected by emerging contaminants. I, I was like, okay, I mean, it's, it's okay. You know, Indiana, like they get $41 million and uh, you know, a couple other gets, you know, $28 million and a couple States. I mean, I think there's only one state that gets like a hundred million, which is like California or something. But other than that, everyone's getting around 20 to, you know, 15 to 20, $30 million. That is the, you, like you said, that doesn't seem like a lot when you've got these multi-million dollar treatment plan upgrades that need to happen in a lot of these affected communities. I mean, the projects that are going to be funded. Well, I mean, there'll be some, but not enough. Right. Right. Well, and you know, when it goes back to a really, there was a really fascinating book I read um, by Seth Siegel called troubled waters, which really takes us back to the root of how we got to where we are today. And it's that we stopped treating our drinking water supplies as sacred. When we introduced disinfectants and then we started allowing discharge permits into the bodies of water that we were using, and we're talking like 100 years ago, to when we started getting into drinking water systems and modernizing them at that time, there was, um, there was a move away from protecting the source and keeping it as pristine as possible. And right. it became, well, we can just treat our way out of this problem and we can allow people to dump and we can allow industry to use it as their trash can, not thinking about the repercussions. And then also not holding industry accountable when they lie and hid um, the things yeah. that they were putting in the water. And Absolutely. so this is kind of where we are today is we are having to wake, you know, we are, we are waking up to a reality that our tap water is not protected. And, and our source for our tap water is not being treated as sacred. Well, I mean, the aquatic life inside these streams are also being affected, which is also being, you know, eaten by some, you know, citizens that are fishing these, uh, these waters of the state. Um, you know, uh, it just is kind of like you said, it's like this cumulative effect, you know, it's a, you do this part and it's going to just, it's like, it just goes through every chain of, uh, connectivity that we're, we're involved in our, our life cycle. It's, it's really, you know, it's not good. It's not good. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, I'll bet you may be thinking, how can I level up and advance my career? If you want to get that promotion, increase your regulatory knowledge, gain professional recognition and earn more money, then it's time to obtain an industry credential from the Institute of Hazardous Material Management. The IHMM offers eight credentials that are ANSI approved for students, experienced, skilled employees without a degree, and for the degreed professional looking to set themselves apart from the pack. 
Their credentials focus on three main areas, Certified Hazardous Material Manager, the CHMM, the Certified Dangerous Goods Professional, the CDGP, and the Certified Safety and Health Manager, the CSHM. If you become an IHMM credential professional, then you will be in the top 1% of your profession and your credential will have a global reach. Check out their programs they offer at www.ihmm.org. That's www.ihmm.org. What are you waiting for? Get started today. Let's talk a little bit about maybe if you could, I, I understand that you guys are working on a new um uh, a new petition that you're going to be submitting on PFOS chemicals. Can you talk about, you know, that and, and what that might be? Yeah. So my organization, Clean Cape Fear, we reached out to the Berkeley Law Clinic um, out in California, and we asked them if they would help us write a communications to the United Nations Human Rights Commission, to the special rapporteur there, um, to issue a human rights violation for our region based on our PFAS exposures. And so this, um, we, you know, there's United Nations speak, which is slightly different than how we would consider things here in the United States. Um, and so we are submitted a, on Thursday. Um, sorry, I'm going to have to edit me out here. <laughs> But, but um, we filed what what is officially called with the United Nations of communications. But that is something that here in the United States, we would consider maybe a complaint. So we're filing a petition or a complaint with the United Nations. And we're asking the United Nations to issue human rights violations here in the United States, um, specifically in the lower Cape Fear River, River Basin for 40 years of chronic exposures to PFAS contamination. Well, what type of precedence do you think this would have with other communities that the United Nations may, you know, look at? I mean, in the U.S., there's a handful of these types of really impacted communities. But, you know, as we know, United Nations is is global in its uh, its approach to these types of atrocities, you know, and communities impacted. Do you think they would also look at this in, in other areas of the world? Well, they already have. And I think that and that's where we kind of got the inspiration and idea is that this particular special rapporteur issued a human rights violation in Italy, um, I think, two years ago for PFAS contamination. And so we felt, well, you know what? Let's have this happen here in the United States for our community, because what we're dealing with right now is Comores is actually trying to expand production and make more PFAS. And they're asking our state environmental um, our, our DEQ, so North Carolina's Department of Environmental Quality, our state regulators, they're asking to expand their air permit so that they can make more PFAS. And we're pretty much done. We are tired of being a sacrifice zone. We have had 40 years of exposure and we deserve 40 years of zero exposure, zero PFAS. Um, so we don't want any more. And so we're saying no more Comores, no more expansion. And, and we feel that if we can have the full weight of the United Nations looking into this, um, that it'll give whatever courage is needed from our regulators to step up and do the right thing. But we also want to hold them accountable and say, you know what, there's a there, you have played a role. You regulators have played a role in allowing industry to to go unchecked for so long. And it really is time, time for you to use your existing authority and do what is what is not just morally right, but is legally right under human rights law. So how would the United Nations come in and, and you know, have um, 
I guess, jurisdiction or some sort of a, you know, lever to, to hold the EPA or other, uh, you know, polluters accountable in this or, or governments, I guess, you know, accountable. How, how, that go, how would that work? So what we, the first step is that we've issued this communication. And so then the special rapporteur at the United Nations has 60 days to respond to our communication. And so in that 60 days, they can either um, dismiss the request or they can send letters of accusations to certain entities within our community that they feel need to act. And so they can make recommendations based on international treaties and international laws. Um, and I think probably the biggest um, the biggest importance and leverage we would have is is just if we have the United States right now on the global scale saying that if they want to be the beacon of a democracy, then they need to start living into what that looks like. And, you know, that looks like protecting fundamental human rights, protecting, I know, protecting the rights of abortion, protecting the right to education and freedom of freedom of information and freedom of choice and freedom of speech. And then also protecting basic human rights and bodily integrity and access to health information and, and clean drinking water. You know, these are all fundamental basic human rights that need to be protected. And so we want to make sure that the right to clean drinking water and the right to a community that is not constantly being hammered with exposures from PFAS and, and other toxins is being protected well, that's great. I mean, I think that will definitely raise the, uh, ele you know, elevate the uh, awareness uh, within these um, government agencies and these polluters. And, and I think it can only help, you know, hopefully result in change. Right. I mean, I think that would be fantastic. Um, anything else, Emily, that we haven't covered that you might want to hit on while we've got you, you know, here, we've covered a lot today. Uh, which has been fantastic. Just getting an update, getting your take on the uh, the new proposed EPA uh, drinking water levels. Uh, is it is it going far enough, uh, or do we include enough of the you know PFAS chemicals in this proposed rule? Um, the new infrastructure bill is it enough to really help all the communities in our you know our our nation? Uh, it's a good start, uh, but uh, you know this has been a great discussion. Anything else we should hit on? I mean, we've done a lot here. We covered a lot of ground. No, I, I think we did. And I think what I would end with is is just saying that if we really want to address this, what what in, is now recognized as a global contamination crisis is we need to start finding green chemistry replacements for for existing PFAS uses. We need to. Well, step one, we need to limit the PFAS in use to essential only, which is what Europe is trying to do. The United States needs to adopt that. We need to quit approving new uses of PFAS. We need to, um, to quit allowing new uses for existing PFAS. And then we need to start funding and encouraging development of replacement chemistry that meets green chemistry standards and, and other, other sustainable uh, chemistry goals to make sure that we're not just putting ourselves in a regrettable substitute like we did with PFOA and Gen X. Right. And so if we get there, and then we also need to clean up the existing exposures and all their forms, which is not just drinking water, but it's also our food supply, it's our soil, um, it's our beaches, it's coating our beaches here in Brunswick County. I'm participating in a study there. Um, and then we also need to look at getting access to those health studies because we need a fighting chance at being able to get quality medical monitoring and preventative care. And we need to 
create a deterrent mechanism. And that's what I'm really hoping with some of this work that we're doing with the United Nations, is that we are calling on all of our leaders to create enforcement actions that deter corporations from continually and habitually breaking the rules. And if that means there needs to be criminal, criminal investigations and we need to start holding the people behind these corporations accountable, then do it. Because so, this is the only way we're going to see lasting change in my mind. So Emily, I mean, what if like a big donor came to you guys and said, hey, look, we want to help fund epidemiology studies in your region and we want to, to bring in as many as many uh, residents to come in and, and you basically give their, their blood samples so we can run these, uh, these toxicology, toxicology uh, studies so we can get this information that we're all looking for. I mean, could that be an answer for, for the Cape Fear uh, and the Clean Cape Fear organizations here? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up. We're actually, as we launched this, um, as we're appealing our Tosca lawsuit, we're also launching a legal defense fund. And so that money from the legal defense fund obviously is helping us continue the legal fight. But any money that's put into that fund, we're earmarking it to use for health studies. And so, yeah, if a donor wanted to come in and do that, let's talk. Um, let's, I'm let's thinking, you know, hey, Bill Gates, hey, Elon Musk, you know, where, where are you guys? We need you to come here and help us and help our communities with it that are, are buying your cars that are, you know, buying your computers, uh, the, you know, these, I mean, these people should help out these communities. If they, they're all talking about being sustainable and community minded, where are the, you know, all the foundations that are out there, the, you know, the MacArthur foundation and people like that, that are really trying to, you know, push in on these, these, these ideas. These are real problems going on in this uh, cave area. And I really love to see some, you know, donors come and help you guys. If they were, how would they get a hold of, you and this um, this uh, fund that you have established. Yeah, so we're going to have a link um, on our website. It's so cleancapefear.org. And if you go under take action and you look at, um, I believe, talks litigation or talks a loss lawsuit, you'll be able to see um, a link there. Um, you can also go to Center for Environmental Health, go to their website, ceh.org, and they will have a link to the Legal Defense Fund. And so we'll have we'll have it in those two areas. And then you can always check on social because we'll be advertising it on our social media. Oh, that's really well, let's get that information out. And when we get done here, you can send me a link to it. We'll start to promote it as well. I think that'd be great because I think there are enough people out in, in the world who are, you know, looking for a cause to support. And yeah. let's, let's see if we can drive somebody your way. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Hey, thanks, Emily. Great to catch up with you as always. Uh, you know, God bless you and, and all the work you're doing and we'll uh, keep up the good fight. We're, we'll keep up and we'll keep in touch. Great. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Goodbye. I want to thank our guest, Emily Donovan, for coming onto the show today. If you want to learn more about Clean Cape Fear and the work Emily's doing, you can go to www.cleancapefear.org to learn more. If you'd like to support the Clean Cape Fear Legal Defense Fund, you can go to www.ceh.org backslash give NC. We'll also put a link to their contact information on my website. 
To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on all the major podcast networks or from my website at www.seankgrady.com. And remember, don't forget to hit the follow button. We would really also appreciate any feedback you can write for us on your podcast uh, platforms. It helps us increase our placement in most podcast networks. Also, if you are watching on YouTube, please subscribe to the channel. Well, thanks for listening. And until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today. Thank you.